Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting content and try and learn a little bit more about their background. Joining us today is Dr. Amar Mabub, who is an Associate Professor of Linguistics from the University of Sydney. Very nice to make your acquaintance, Professor. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Fantastic to be here. Thank you so much for uh, agreeing to this interview. The paper that we're going to be discussing today is World English's Social Disharmonization and Environmental Destruction, which is going to be published in the Routledge Handbook of World Englishes. We've spoken already on the podcast to Dr. Aya Matsuda and Dr. Uh, Jennifer Jenkins on this topic. To start with, I'd like to hear a little about how you define World Englishes and how English is used as a lingua franca. Uh, it's a really interesting thing. And I think before we talk about world Englishes uh, and a lingua franca, we need to start with the first sort of a concept, which is language. Mm. How do we define language? Because everything sort of flows on from there, right? So uh, think about it this way, without whether we are interested in language as linguists or applied linguists or educationists, we are, uh, we are still engaged in language. So what is language and uh, how do we actually understand language? And I'm going to put this out as a challenge question to people uh, listening. How many of them during their graduate work were or are actually engaged in any real thinking about what is this phenomenon called language that we are all professionals uh, in? Uh, what do, how do we define it? And and you will see that as soon as you get into this, this question, it's a very, very difficult difficult question to answer. Um, and partly because language hasn't really been defined for us any any particular way. Uh, so if you were to pick up a book on introduction to linguistics, you will often find in somewhere in the introductory chapters, a whole section which contrasts uh, human language in relation to non-human communication. So in a sense, language is defined in juxtaposition to non-human creatures. And that in itself is a huge assumption which uh, is hardly ever questioned uh, and which we sort of take on as granted that language is a human specific category right and uh, or a facility mm. uh, or an ability and then this ability is then carved out by linguists uh, and language experts into what we now see as named languages now this is this is very interesting sort of to think about because when you start wondering what exactly is language then if we don't want to think of it as a juxtaposition to non-humans and this is very important in in terms of the paper that we are discussing here mm. because how is world english is related to environmental destruction right mm -hmm. so it's the the, I, the the issue and it's something that i talk about in quite a detail in this paper in this chapter i actually introduce four definitions four ways of looking at language or defining language Mm. And and looking at how each definition of language gives us a different insight into ways of looking at and understanding language. And then, very crucially, by making language to be non-speciest, we actually will start acknowledging that other beings, other beings other than human beings also have language and hence also have sociosemiotics. And therefore, our, you know, human arrogance on, uh, you know, treating the planet the way that we do uh, will be questioned through our understanding of language. So in a sense, you know, you have to go back really, in a sense, we have to go back quite a bit in time. And we have to sort of uh, look at uh, at how 
these categories and that these disciplines were established over time, right? So, for example, when we talk about language or linguistics, where, where is the history of linguistics? What, where does this term come from? What is language? What is the history of word language? Where does language come from? And, and you start, if you start asking these questions, then you realize that these terms don't have a continuous developmental sort of a history. Uh, in fact, language uh, has been uh, appropriated uh, from a notion of lang, right, and 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 from you know the from the idea of 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 what a lang is to a language to to creating a lang as a system, mm. which goes back into sort of you know Saussurean dichotomization between the lang and the parole. Again, please forgive my pronunciation and accent. I I'm, I can't speak French, so I I can't really speak these words well. But I hope that you understand what I mean, right? The idea of a dichotomy which we all are taught in linguistics and applied linguistics courses, the four dichotomies in language, one of them being the lang and the parole, which goes back to sociore, right? And 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 now that segregation of, of a system versus the use of a system, uh, you know, in sort of a Chomskyan sort of frame of, of reference, you might call that competence and performance, mm-hmm. right? So there are different sets of terms that are used for these things. Uh, and then competence and performance is then seeps into SLA and applied linguistics and TESOL, where you have this contrast in competence and performance, right? And 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 you really have to say, why is it set up as a duality? Why is is is, is why is uh, sociore understood in terms of of you know dichotomies? Why do we not understand sociore in terms of complementarities? So it's not one or the other. Language is both the system and the use, and they in fact are interacting kind continuously. And that's where you know we we sort of look at how. Studies in, that are adopting a, a you know complex systems theory or a dynamic systems theory sort of are are coming to understandings of language as as being fluid and dynamic and always shifting, right? And 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 you start realizing that only once you start breaking away from this this you know ingrained you know essentially colonial un- understandings of language and linguistics, mm. which creates dichotomies and divisions, uh, which create names of languages based on structural variation rather than mutual intelligibility, right? right? So there's all these sort of really odd sort of things that come to place. So going back now to your question, so hmm. world English is then, right? So English is a name of a language. Now notice here, and this is so crucial, that English, when we say world English is, even if dialects of English is, are mutually unintelligible, mm-hmm. it unifies them. So world Englishes is not just a study of language, it's actually essentially a political statement which unifies Englishes, even when they are very divergent, mm. right? So we can study how they contrast, but we still see them as English. And we see as English uh, as as their derivations coming from English, right? So you get this scope of world Englishes, or you can think think about it as, as a lingua franca, where you're not 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 looking as much as the separateness or the distinctness of the features of the varieties, but rather how people come together to talk about you know how use language in particular contexts and they negotiate and accommodate for the variations, right? So you you have different ways of studying these, but really what we are doing is we are still pushing and foregrounding English as if English itself is is as a very useful language which which will take us somewhere and which is essential for everybody and even if it's a local variety of English it's fantastic it's it's divergent you know we, when we're doing all of these things we're forgetting what language is right so that's why I would sort of come back and say let's question what world English is really means what let's question what language is uh, you know language is a socio-semiotic inheritance 
inheritance, which means uh, it is something that we acquire, we learn from and we develop in an environment which is geographically based with a group of people who are essentially our caregivers and our family members and other people in, in around whom we grow up. And, 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 and those people speak language which represents the geographical and, uh, you know, and human needs of that particular region, right? So each language evolves in a geographical region and within its geographical region, it has, it has described all the things that it needs to, you know, it has lexic lexicalized names of different plants and berries and roots. It has lexicalized the purposes of different things to for different uses, right? All of that is grammaticalized into these languages. What does that tell us? That tell us, tells us that the people who evolved, uh, developed this language over generations you know, and passed it on across generation to generation, used language to have, have an understanding of where they lived and what was around them. Now, what happens with English, right, and world English is, is English used to be a geographically bound language like, like most languages are. Hmm. But what happened with English is, is, is it came on, to, it came on with, with, right, with, with the European colonization. And because the British Empire was one of the most uh, successful ones, it went out and reached into each, every corner of the world. Right? Now, in doing that, what it also did is it increased its geographical range. Right. So instead of just talking about and doing and things in a, in a, in a, say, in a, in a geographical range of, let's say, uh, hundred, uh, you know, hundred thousand square meters, let's mm. say that's a square, you know, of, of a community that inhabited a particular region. And again, you know, if you go into a pre-colonization, sort of Western colonization history of any, pretty much anywhere where world English are spoken, most of those communities had a, a, a nomadic uh, sort of a lifestyle. This doesn't mean that they didn't have any connection to geography. They did. But like, like, other geographic, other biological creatures in nature, you know, biological creatures have a range in which they, they live. Yes, a species itself can live across a very large range of land, right? Mm. So, for example, kangaroos, I'm, I'm here in, uh, you know, uh, in, 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 in the bush uh, in Australia, and Australia, in, you, know, you find kangaroos and wallabies across many parts of Australia. That's true. But the, the wallabies that are around my neighborhood where I am based at the moment, in Malangani, uh, in, New, in Northern Rivers area, New South Wales, these kangaroos don't actually have a huge geographical range. They actually live their whole lives within a, a particular range, even though kangaroos are everywhere, right? And, and it's really interesting and very useful to actually observe and study and learn from nature. Um, and, and I'll come back perhaps to when we talk about another question to this, this issue. Um, but when you start observing from nature and you realize how perhaps humans also had a geographical range. So, yes, while humans were spread, so, for example, through Australia, a group of people would have a geographical range and they will know other people around them. And, and just like with birds, right, every, one, every couple of hours I will see here sitting in the bush that a lot of the bush birds of the same kind come together and they have a little mini conference of a thing. And then they fly away. And then a couple of hours later, they, you know, another group of birds of the same kind come again together. So what, what do you observe in, when you look at this? You're observing that actually the, the birds are actually, they have language. They are actually interacting. They actually have abstract understandings of things that they negotiate with each other and share. So, for example, uh, I'll give you an example here, a very concrete one from the uh, just yesterday morning when a couple of solos came into my motorhome. Now, the first time one came in, it was frantic and it was flying like crazy. And then it went out. 
And then a couple of minutes later, it came back in again. But this time it was very controlled and it, it explored the motor home inside and then went out again. And then and a bird came again. Now, I thought it was just the same bird. Uh, and then came again and looked around. It was very controlled, uh, not the, like the frantic first bird. Then it went out again. And then two birds came in together. And that's when I realized actually there were two birds, not one. And so what does that tell us again? That the, when the first bird came in, it was frantic. It didn't know what this space was like. It went out. It communicated with the other bird. So when the other mm. bird came, it, never, it was never frantic. It knew what was going on inside. Right? Now, these are things beyond our human conception because we don't understand the bird language. Right? I wrote a poem recently, Can You Think Like a Duck? Right. Uh, we, we can't actually think even like another human being for uh, forget about another species. Right. So if, if we don't really know so much about the other species to have that arrogance of using language as a category, as making it superior to other non other living beings is essentially speciesism. Right. And it's, mm. it's, it's creating a form of a study, an academic and an intellectual study, which puts humans at the center of the study so that any linguist will only study human language and nothing else. Right. Uh, it will only focus on human language and nothing else. So essentially, they have created a science, science or a discipline which is, uh, you know, uh, uh, human centric. And that's hu hugely problematic. And that is partly what leads to environmental disaster and catastrophes, because we just don't realize what, what we're doing. Um, and that's also what leads to social disharmonization, because, you know, when you introduce another language into a community, you're actually introducing new categories and concepts that didn't exist in that category. And therefore, the local populations are unaware of what these categories are, how, how they operate, how they function. And that means that they are easily manipulated through that language. Right. And through that new category system. And that leads to social disharmonization. Now, notice I, I, I have to be very clear, careful here. I'm never saying that we should not learn English or should not use English. We need a lingua franca and English is a great lingua franca to have. But as soon as it, we go into things, thinking about education, knowledge building, uh, you know, the idea of diversity, idea of, of ecology, ecology of language, then we really have to move out of these traditional ways and traditional boundaries that confine our thinking and really move away from them, really. We just really have to take a step, giant step back and sort of reassess where we are and then start taking a step further. You know, that, that's not a bad thing necessarily. It's actually a, a very good strategy in, 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 in you know, sort of uh, engaging with long-term sort of complex situations. It's, it's just sometimes to take a step back and then say, wait a second, let's look again and, and then rethink language and re-engage with language in a very different way, connecting it not just as a human thing, but relating it to other species, thinking of or not just oral or its visual representation, but also in terms of other so, so, you know, sensory systems, and then creating a, a, a broader understanding of how sociosemiotics and symbols operate in, in human and non-human lives. Um, and, and through that, create understandings that create harmonizations with, between people and between people and the environment. Because really, if, if we, you know, we, we talk, we hear a lot about environmental stuff from sciences and, and, you know, environmental sciences. But really, it's ling language experts and social scientists who have so much to really do. And it's, it's, it's their work that is actually is going to make a change. Because, you know, science can only do stuff in, in, in the material world. Anytime you move from the material world to a non-material or a socio-semiotic world, 
science doesn't work at, at, at all. In fact, that's where this, when scientists gives you give us you know insights into education and 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 other language and things, they are actually absolutely often absolutely incorrect. Because they don't have the fundamental understandings of how non-material systems work. And in fact, I'm going to throw this as a challenge question to you. In fact, it's not just scientists that don't know. In fact, if I were to ask you this question, uh, you will realize that most social scientists do not know the answer to these questions either. And I'll, I'll ask you this question. It's a very simple question. Right. So if you think about this way, if the material world, that is the world that you can see. So any any material object, any biological creature. Uh, is essentially, you know, if we agreed on, on basics of science, then we will say that the fundamental building block of anything that is material is an atom. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes, it is true that at the atom can be split and be understood in, in other ways. But we also add, but atom is the basic building block of everything that's material. Mm. Right. Is that correct? Yes. Right. Now, if we take that, now my question then is, what is the equivalent building block of the non-material world? That is, I mean, I mean, the socio-semiotic world, the world where, you know, social interactions and understandings and theories and abstractions and disciplines and all of that stuff works because it's not material, right? Mm. It is non-material. So what is the basic building block of the non-material world? So that's uh, my question to you. I would, <laughs> I would, uh, I would say thought. No, it's not. It's not thought. No. So this is really interesting. You can go out and again, that's a challenge question and do sure. as much search as it is possible. You mm -hmm. will not find an answer. You will not find an answer because nobody studies this. Because right. once you study this, you it's like physics, right? Once you identify atom mm -hmm. as the basic, basic, basic unit, then yes, you can have a booming sciences in physics and astrophysics and chemistry and everything and biology and nuclear biology and all these booming sciences because they have have identified a basic unit of, of of material and they all agree on it and they all use that understanding across various disciplines right, right. now we don't have a parallel we don't have a comparable thing in social sciences right mm. as soon as you go into the non material sciences which are the social sciences and humanities uh, <coughs> right you essentially realize there is no single building block mm. everybody does their own thing right isn't it odd don't you find it odd that in the material world that can you have a single thing that is, but it's there's none in the non-material world? Why is it that nobody has ever really worked on it? Why is it academia is not even interested in it? Well, I am. I'm extremely interested in this question. What is the non-material world? What is the interface between the material and the non-material world? And how do we actually, what is the building block of uh, the non-material world? And I'll give you the answer. The answer is, is very simple. It's a symbol. Symbols are the building blocks of the non-material world. Think about it. Take any discipline, right? Religious studies, what do they study? Symbols. Take cultural studies, what do they study? Symbols. Take linguistics, what do they study? Symbols. Mm. Take, any, take economics, what do they study? Symbols. Take any, any social science. They're all studying symbols. Right. And yet, there is no unifying theory of social sciences. Isn't it very strange and odd? Right. We don't, and, and, and this is it. This is what I'm telling you. Simple is the answer. Mm -hmm. And I've been trying to, you know, it's very hard to I've, I've been writing. I've been writing about this in my non-academic work, uh, in the essays that I'm doing, especially in the poetry that I'm writing. There's a poem that's uh, I've actually made it into a video as well. It's called Symbols, a Translinguistic Poem. Uh, you know, 
And uh, I, I'll be happy if you include that poem in the podcast or a link to it. Sure. Because then people can see uh, what, what I mean by symbols. It's, it's a poem and the video recording is in English. It's actually in Urdu. But I wrote the poem originally in English. Right. Uh, why English? Because, you know, my first language of literacy is English. Why? Because I'm a colonial subject. Right. I'm, uh, I, uh, that's, that's who I am. I can't escape that. Uh, but that coloniality is what also brings the social disharmonization. That is the coloniality that brings us world Englishes. Right. So when we study world Englishes at, as if it's a, if it's a neutral subject, as an academic discipline only, we're actually, we're doing disservice to our own communities mm. because it's not. Because it's not, it's, it's fully loaded with, uh, with lots of concepts and terms, Sim simple concepts, a simple concept like religion, right? Religion tears apart, apart the world. Mm. And yet you will find that there is no translation equivalent of religion in pretty much any indigenous language in the world. The very concept didn't exist. Now, when you bring a concept and then you study the concept, you create the concept and you create the categories uh, that the concept leads to, which are independent, differentiated, named religions, right? And just like languages, which is also a colonial science. Religion studies, cultural studies, languages studies, they're all colonial sciences. Mm. They're, they're embedded in colonial histories. You know, sociology, psychology, all of these things, they're embedded in colonial histories. And that is why they were interested in unifying understandings of things. They were interested in and developing understandings of the locals in order to be able to create laws and regulations and manipulate and manage those populations. That was their interest. Mm. That was their interest in studying psychology and sociology and anthropology and linguistics, any of these things, religious studies. They were interested in using these studies and disciplines to further exert the controls that they have. Right. Now, essentially, once they did that, what they did through this process, what, you know, um, uh, Chris, uh, do you have any pets? Uh, we had uh, we've had budgerigars, and uh, uh -huh. we we, oh, we keep a menagerie of fish here. Okay, all right, all right, that's beautiful. So now fish are interesting because we actually don't think of fish as being very sentient, right? Mm. Uh, uh, that's right. But fish tanks, right? As you move towards the fish tank, and you move towards the place where you put their food. Mm. Do you see that the fish have moved mm -hmm. and they are looking yeah, at you and they're changing yeah. directions? Yeah. How is that possible if they don't have social cognizance? And how can social cognizance be possible without some sort of a semiotic system? Right. So to then think that humans are the only ones who have language is you can just see with your own observation. So one of the things that I am I'm very keen on and I, I keep telling my students and, 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 and colleagues and others, uh, you know, that I meet is we really need to shift uh, our focus from doing what is known as reference-based thinking, mm. which is essentially what academia is grounded in, and shift it to observation-based thinking. Mm. Now, this is very crucial. Why? Because observation means that you are in the present and you are using your sensory systems and your understanding, your socio-semiotic systems mm. to constantly and in the moment, in the present, make sense of reality, right? But you start doing that and you start noticing, for example, your fish and how your fish re re respond to you and to light and to movement and to sound and to vibrations. Then you will start to realize that perhaps, you know, 
communication and language operates through multi-sensory systems in ways that are unfathomable to human beings. One of the things that I was struck by in your work that other people who work with World Englishes and other people who publish works, oftentimes they are looking at, they're trying to compare things that already are present in the language. And your work does more to point out the, as you say, the things that we don't really talk about, the things that we don't really think about. So basically, what is language? And how, as you point out, the very first thing, so the, the four points of language that you that you bring up in your paper. The first one is that it's semogenic, uh, uh, so that the it codes how we see reality. So the language that we have to explain reality almost, as you point out, restricts our range of being able to talk about it. Yes. So I wouldn't use the word restrict mm -hmm. uh, because that seems like it's a very negatively loaded term. Uh, I, I, I would say, you know, it sort of goes back to sort of, uh, you know, sort of what is, is, is popularly known as the, you know, Sepir-Wurf hypothesis or, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. the, uh, so that the idea of uh, linguistic relativity, right? A lot of the work is drawn from psychology rather than actually linguistics or from anthropology, right. uh, which is where the basis of the theory is, right? And this is, a, this is a, something that you will see across, especially in linguistics. And this has a, a, a lot to do with Noam Chomsky and the American sort of uh, structuralism and there's a sort of the American traditions and linguistics, uh, the generative grammar, the universal grammars, mm -hmm. right? And a lot of that is actually, is, is, is goes back to that split. The aspect of language has gained so much work and so much attention and so much, you know, sort of, uh, you know, research, including in, in, in TESOL with psycholinguistics and as a Chomsky, a crash by Chomsky. Uh, and, and so you see that influence of sort of the, you know, the, of the Chomsky paradigm on language, which essentially dominates the whole area in the field and the discipline. Uh, and, you know, and really have no ways of taking in understandings of language that come in from different perspectives. So mm -hmm. re-looking, re-learning Wolf, for example. So, for example, Wolf was very worried, as, as I am, for example, that uh, one of the things, expansion, you know, of course, when Wolf, think the expansion hadn't really happened to the degree that it has happened today. It's incredible today, right? But essentially, the, the scare, the, the worry of the, or the risk of a loss of super diversity, right? So it's, now, it's, this is also, again, really in, in, interesting, and I kind of sometimes get annoyed, uh, you know, at, at people who use the term super diversity as if it's a good thing, then they appear to cosmopolitan cities and as if, you know, the world is becoming super diverse. And when you get this word super diversity in Aztecs and TESOL and everybody starts studying it, everybody starts seeing this world is becoming diverse because we're studying super diversity. But really, come out and live in the bush and you will realize that the world is losing diversity. We mm. used to be super diverse 500 years ago, but we are no longer super diverse and our diversity is, is, is dying out. And it's not just in the species of, 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 of biological life, but also in terms of human cultural variations, language variations, ways of doing things, ways of thinking about things, ways of conceptualizing things, ways of understanding basic things like directions, uh, you know. Uh, these basic things that we t take as granted and we just work with East and West, they are not universal. In fact, the idea of East-West is not a universal idea. You know, the, these the things are assumed in our, our knowledge building through the through education in English medium instruction, especially English medium instruction, which is, again links it with a lot of the, uh, you know, world English's uh, elf sort of work today, mm -hmm. is extremely harmful in, in damaging the local ecologies. So it's not restrictive, rather it, it is deep, you know, so when you see an indigenous language, you see 
very deep understandings of the ecological systems and the relationships that can only be developed over generations of living in the same region, right? So, right, again, an innovation, and again, something people can just try out themselves, right? You, you, people drive fast across highways or even country roads getting to a destination, and they see trees, and they just see trees. They don't actually know how many trees there are. Actually, if you know, I, I'm going to challenge people who especially live in urban centers and are big cities to just go out into a fall forest and, and, and they will realize that it takes at least a couple of days, a couple of days before a person can even actually identify the number of trees there are in the place around them. Mm. Why? Because we are so remote from the present and observational thinking and living. What you're saying is similar to uh, what a previous guest and a mutual friend of ours, uh, Dr. Mark Helgeson, was bringing up uh, when he tries to teach English uh, through the Japanese concept of wabi-sabi and the, uh, the enjoyment of nature and the enjoyment of just noticing beauty yes. around you. Yes. And yes. Uh, you're, when I was reading your paper, I was uh, reminded of uh, a TED talk that was um, produced by uh, Patricia Ryan, who uh, works in Dubai. Well, works in the works in the Emirates anyway. And uh, her topic was "Don't insist on English," because when mm -hmm. you listen to the the language of the the context that you are in, you learn so much more. And she uses the example of uh, nature and the the indigenous names for for trees and species of plants that don't exist anywhere else in the world. Yes, because you know why? And notice here, so one of the definitions in the chapter uh, is that language is science. Right? right? And that's a very crucial definition. Notice, I'm not saying that language is used for science. What I said there is language is science. So that's a pretty large claim. And I think, I, I, you know, I, if somebody questions me or challenges me, it, it would be a fair challenger question. So I, I, think, I, I think I need to elaborate on this uh, a bit. In the paper, you note that science at its core is a system of classification and categorization, essentially the creation of taxonomies and the way that we speak about the world. And language in a similar way uh, has these ways of describing uh, the context that you're in. So as you say here, thus a taxonomy of any language will be primarily based on the context in which that language evolved. So language X has different meanings and ways of expressing uh, things than language Y, which was developed in a different context. So when English comes into that context, uh, it's going to bring with it contextual vocabulary that isn't always relevant to the new location. Yes, that's an excellent observation, Chris, and a great sort of place for we to sort of jump on forward. So when we talk about categorization and classification, and that we, we realize that science as, as a fundamental is classification and categorization, which is the same as language, because that's it's, it's, it's the same thing that they do. Then one thing we start realizing is, is, is uh, we can, one, one of the questions that we can ask then is how are categories and classifications made in a language mm. right because we know that the world is super diverse and that each community will not just use language in a certain way but it will use it also for certain purposes which was also shaped the notion the kind of language that it has it the people there will have certain needs 
they will have a certain environment they will have certain things they need to take care of or not they will have certain kind of illnesses or not they will have certain kinds of tests or not they will have certain type of medicinal herbs or not so all of that will be knowledge that is geographically relevant and is in, in is essentially captured in the language and the categories of the language and because the world is super diverse or it used to be super diverse we had this diverse ways of doing classifications and categorizations now this is where things get interesting what it means then is that what we do in science today because science is done through english and english is the language of sciences therefore we use the tech, the approaches which are the approach, approaches of approaches in which english as a language creates categories and classifications becomes extended into how we study and classify things in all regions of the world uh, regardless of the local languages or the local cultures or the local concepts it's the english approach to uh, to categorization and classification that becomes the dominant form of classification and categorization uh, and other forms of classification and categorizations are neglected often uh, obscured uh, deleted you know uh, or made fun of ridiculed as as you know as 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 folk signs or or whatever it might be made fun mm. of so you see that consistently happening and so over the last period of 3 400 years essentially english based sciences have come to a point where that's the only form of science that is acceptable right. uh, any other form of science is not now again that's a huge you know blow to super diversity because with each with each essentially language being disrupted and only english use english approaches to categorization and classifications being used we are creating a science that is horrible in its orientation and and let me elaborate why because in english there are essentially only two only two primary ways in which classifications and categorizations are made there are just two this regardless of what discipline or science you study now the first one is the use of genealogy mm. as a way of classifying and categorizing that's the first way in which english does this now you can see this for example in uh, biology right so you have the species and the evolution of a species which is genealogical or you look at uh, linguistics which looks at uh, language families right so you've mm. got dravidian languages indo-european languages so what you see then is regardless of the working in all european based colonial based english based sciences operate with this one way of classifying is genealogy and the second approach is is structural/functional analysis so for example in uh, biology uh, you have the classifications of you have the genealogical classifications and then you have a structural classification and functional classification so for example things that can fly things don't that don't fly things that are stationary things that are mobile things that have bo- backbones things that have don't have backbones these are the structural variations right mm-hmm. or you have functional variations things is right so so structural or functional so uh, structure will be bones and function will be fly so function will be things that fly or swim and structures are things like bones and 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 uh, and, and feet and where you know kind of things they create or kind of all these sort of 
structural elements. So uh, essentially, you see that in biology, you see the same thing in sort of sociological studies by looking at how people are identified, studied through identity markers and and individuations. Uh, you find the same thing in linguistics. You you find descriptions of language that are structure based or function based. Uh, and notice there, there is a, there is a relationship between type A and classification and type B. In in e English based sciences, type B classifications are often used to create type A. So they will use a structural or functional analysis to create understandings of genealogies, mm. right? So they will say that, you know, they, these birds look like the same, they have the same habits, they have the same structures, they have the same features, they function in similar ways. So they are perhaps the same sort of a family. And notice that that as DNA studies are being introduced in, in, in these sort of things, some of these classifications are changing because uh, the structures at the DNA level don't always overlap with the structures that you see through your eyes in, in, in an observational sense, direct observational. Right? So it's more of an indirect observation that you have to go into. So when you see all of these classificatory systems, you realize that English only has two. Mm. Right. In all the traditional sciences, doesn't matter which discipline, including sciences, hard sciences and social sciences. Right. You find exactly the same way of doing things. And that's a problem because uh, that's not the only way to see and categorize the world. And you see ways, uh, you see alternatives coming in when you see some of the emerging sort of sciences, for example, envir environmental sciences that are not as keen on looking at just the species and the, and the structures. They're looking at the interrelationships between the species. So it's not that just the koala trees dies but if a koala sorry if the koala it becomes extinct but if a koala becomes extinct the koalas live on certain trees certain kind of parasites live on koalas certain types of birds use koala hair to make your their nests mm. uh, you know certain insects use koala poop for certain things it's all those interrelation interspecies relationships that are ignored in, in traditional sort of approaches, uh, which in category, approaches to categorization and classifications, which are so crucial to understanding the interrelationships and the intricacies of the environment. Mm. Now, let's draw a parallel here with language. Lang language and linguists do exactly the same thing, and that's where we get trapped. And, and, and you were right. Most people don't. People keep working on structures and differences and all these things because that's what they've been educated in. Right. right? So I think right there, that's what they've been trained in doing. And this is an, another level of world English is and how it interacts with academic knowledge and, in, uh, uh, you know, uh, higher education and knowledge productions that is extremely disruptive. Because not only uh, are we not recognizing different categories in which how people think, we want them to all conform to certain ways of thinking and doing science and doing knowledge and doing categorization and doing classifications so that a person uh, who cannot master these approaches to classifications and categorizations will not be given a, a degree in, in linguistics, right? They will, they will not get a PhD in linguistics unless they demonstrate that they have now mastered their ability to differentiate things based on structure, function, and genealogy, and and they have demonstrated this uh, this this uh, you know this ability by writing a, a grammar of an X language or Y language, uh, or a description of an X thing or a Y thing, right? Because if you don't do that, you don't get your PhD. Right. So the PhD then becomes a, a, a gatekeeper and this PhD then make, gives you the status to become a professor in your own country or somewhere else, which means you then recreate the same approach. Essentially, you replicate approach of classifying and categorization based only on genealogy and destruction function 
and you're not looking at interrelationships. Now, for example, again, looking at language, I recently asked a very well-known uh, descriptive linguist this question. Can you point me towards uh, a map of South Asia that looks that maps mutual intelligibility? Hmm. Mapping mutual intelligibility. Can you show? Do you know of a map that has that gives me a, mu- a map of mutual intelligibility across the South Asia, for example? Mm-hmm. Guess what? Not just did, did they say they don't have one. They actually wrote this, and this is on Facebook, so you can actually search in and read it yourself. He actually wrote that it's impossible to do one. Now that just bothers me to the nth degree. Notice mm. this. This is where the and the genealogical uh, sort of understandings take you to the point where you are your point. You're thinking that these are really different languages, right? And they are all all different, and they are because we have named them differently. They are actually different. The fact is, they are not. You know, I live, I come, I was born in, in, in Pakistan. I lived parts of my life in Pakistan. I've, lived, I've, I've done a lot of work across different parts of the world with various indigenous communities. And one thing that is very obvious is, is, is there is no hardcore division between language A and language B when you are working within indigenous uh, geographical regions. They are fluid. And what you ha- really have is a lactal range. You have a flow of lecture range so that, for example, uh, the uh, the Persian speakers can uh, mutually communicate with, uh, mutually intelligible with, with Brahvi speakers who are uh, are 100% mutually intelligible almost with uh, Balochi speakers who are uh, mutually intelligible with Sindhi speakers who are mutually intelligible with Siraiki speakers who are mutually intelligible with Punjabi speakers who are mutually, mutually speaker, you know, right. intelligible with X and Y and Y and Z and it just goes on. Right. So what you see really on ground observationally is this huge lecture range where essentially you have this, these groups of people who, who would be able to communicate within a geographical range, but not beyond a geographical range. Mm. And that goes back to my observation that humans were geographically bound. Right. That's why now we have these notions of migration and, and all of these issues. And, and notice, again, the colonial sort of in, in interests and in, in economic and educational policies love destabilizing human populations. Why? Because the more you mobilize an individual entity of human being or a group of human beings, the less geographically based they will be. Right. And the less geographically based they will be, the less biologically biologically you know biological we will be we become more semiotic right Right. so there's a shift between biological living and semiotic living right so humans have have moved hugely from away from being living biologically only to to drawing hugely on social semiotics and relying on them for for basic things like uh, you know mass education uh, mass communication uh, right and, and 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 notice both mass communication and education operate essentially essentially only through two sensory systems only two which are sight and sound they ignore uh, smell they ignore uh, touch they snow ignore taste mm-hmm. uh, now i in my work i differentiate between the sensory systems i call sight and sound group a and uh, smell, touch, and taste group B. There are various reasons for doing that, but no. Uh, uh, one is important one is in terms of education and language and literacy. Notice that educa- uh, language and education and media operate only through group A. They don't operate through group B. Of course, you can have references to group B, but you can't actually create group B. So what do I mean by this? Anybody who's hearing the podcast, 
uh, or us talking to each other right now can hear us our sounds right so the sounds can carry beyond the present time right so when you hear these sounds you are actually hearing these sounds mm. right it is not any other sound it is you're not thinking of these sounds you are actually listening to these sounds at the moment when you're listening to this podcast now notice that action has to happen in the present it cannot happen in the past or the future it can always only happen in the present right so you can only listen to the actual sound in the present which is mm. great but notice what sound allows us to do sound allows us to reach to move a sound from here to another place remotely mm-hmm. without our presence being there right so i can speak or we can have a video in uh, link right now or i can write a paper or i can make an artwork or a drawing and i can send it to you by mail or email or some some t- tool and then you will be specially away from me you will not be present with me in the same time and you can yet you you can you will be able to see and read and go into that world right so notice sight and sound uh, allow us to move away from the present mm. into a non present group b does not let you do that so for example uh, let's say you know uh, let's say wasabi right uh, just for a, for an example now If, when i think of wasabi mm-hmm. i can i can taste it i can smell the sharpness you know right? and wasabi is not like chili hot right so it's not like you perspire a lot it's like you stop breathing almost and thinking for a second and then you you're okay mm-hmm. and like nothing happened right so it's a very different experience but i can describe it to you in words you can pro- perhaps feel it but you cannot experience it unless you are eating the wasabi mm-hmm. right now all that stuff that's not capture and translate into the same mechanisms of mobility as sound and sight do because sight and sight allow the duality to happen you can be within the present or you can be outside the present and you can still access it mm. right but you cannot access taste outside that space you have to actually have wasabi in the mouth in the present to do it so that's a very important distinction from group a and b group b has to be in the present and therefore always has to be in the materiality you have to have the material in front of you so that for example if you are if you see something that is rotten or horrible or you don't like no matter what somebody says to you you will not eat it because you you know you don't like it you know it's poisonous to you you don't you know you will get sick you won't do it right, right? because it's a materiality of the thing in front of you you don't you you can observe right there now notice as soon as we move into sight and sound right so essentially if you were to listen to this and agree with me you have to put your trust in what i'm saying same thing if you were to read my paper and be influenced by it or, or like it or agree with it in a sense what you're doing is you are you are you are you you know you're 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 changing your own opinions and perspectives in alignment with somebody else's writing mm-hmm. which you cannot objectively verify mm-hmm. because it is in writing right it's not something you can actually observe and so you have to put your trust and that is why you know we have credibilities we have different journal rankings and we have university ranking now that's why the the the, the legitimization of certain sources is so so interesting and and so problematic at the same time uh, because it constantly you know legitimizes certain knowledge and delegitimizes certain knowledge uh, so through that you know you have certain types of 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 thinking that evolves and other things that just get thrown out so for example the chomskyan influence on linguistics is so strong in the us and the us publication industry and thesis industry is so strong and influential worldwide that they push through these agendas locally 
right? Mm-hmm. Because uh, people are not locally are not strong enough. You know, they don't have the same sense of knowledge or knowledge making because we are all framed within English categories. So it's really hard to move out of them. Right. So this 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 is what creates the sort of inertia within which we all operate and which I, in a sense I'm trying to break up through the kind of work I'm trying to write and encourage is because we need to break through this inertia again, take a step back and then refocus and, and rethink what it is that we really want to do uh, shift perhaps the very focus and the goals of education away from English as the medium of instruction. You know, English as a lingua franca is a different thing from English as a medium of instruction. Right. That's a horrible, horrible thing to do. Uh, and, you know, uh, you know, I've actually been very vocal and, 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 and in my, uh, you know, in my, my regret that, you know, we are going to set up a new journal called English as a medium of in, English as a medium of instruction journal. Mm. EMI journal. And I, 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 I don't like the fact that we are legitimizing all of this. But you see how it's happening, right? So the EMI is, EMI has been around for a very long time, right? So I, mm. I grew up in EMI mm. in the 1970s and 80s. So it's not a new thing. You know, my, my parents who were educated in the 1930s and 40s, they were educated in English medium instruction. So it's not a new thing in, in many parts of the world at all. But notice the emphasis in the education and the research, which was triggered mostly by the establishment of the EMI center at the University of Oxford. Now, the University of Oxford set that up not because they're really interested in EMI. They're interested in selling books. OUP makes a lot of money. And yeah. EMI books sell. And the TESOL industry is dominant. That's why the sponsor, right? Oxford, Oxford and these publishers are sponsors of, mm. of these uh, mm. conferences. Because they work together in, in, in an economic system that continuously disempowers uh, you know, minorities and brings wealth and prosperity to a handful of, of communities and people. Uh, and that's where the problems lie with world Englishes and, 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 and applied linguistics and linguistics. It's at that fundamental level of, of even the disciplinary knowledge, right, that we really have to go back and look at. Exactly. And the point uh, that I uh, appreciate in your work is that you're not, you never suggest that the use of English as a lingua franca is in any way a, a negative activity, but we shouldn't approach the use of a single language without questioning how and where and, and why we're doing it and whether there is a, an alternative. Absolutely. And uh, in a sense, uh, bringing it back to that, to linguistics uh, and language, for example, why is it, uh, I was talking to you about the mapping of the, you know, mapping, why is it that, for example, we don't map inter, inter uh, uh, you know, map for mutual intelligibilities? Because, uh, you know, lectal maps will tell us, in fact, how people are able to communicate across a very large area rather than limited areas. Uh, why don't we use, for example, writing systems that are uh, either based on our syllabic, syllabic or, or based on uh, uh, logographs, right? So what, you know, this is sort of going into the question of what is a writing system and how is it related to language? So the first thing to really to understand is language is primarily only spoken. Mm. Language is not primarily written. Uh, the writing systems are a visual representation of the linguistic meaning, which means the oral meaning is being represented through a writing system. Now, a writing system operates through sight, the oral system operates through ears and mouth, right? Mm-hmm. They, they use different parts of our body and they use different sensory systems of our body, which means they're independent of each other, which is very often we can see that, right? So people who might be not be able to see can still hear 
and talk. And people who may not be able to hear and talk, they might still be able to read and write, right? Because those two, uh, those two abilities are independent of each other. So that's important. So and where is language? Language is not primarily in the writing, although it, it is pushed into that. Language really is in the spoken. And this is very crucial. Notice how the push of the colonial educational systems is constantly toward literacy and writing systems. Even though the primary, primary aspect of language is oral, not written. Why? Because if writing was primary to languages, then all human languages would have writing systems. Uh, the observation that most languages don't have a writing system can lead us to sort of another observation that perhaps, you know, writing systems are not that crucial to language and not so crucial to literacy or education because obviously you know so we have gotten so far as a human human you know uh, species and evolved over generations and generations and generations and for a very long time there was no literacy and people were doing relatively well you know they were still building monuments and and agriculture and doing fantastic stuff and navigating around the world and and they didn't have uh, you know, huge liter literacy based educational systems, uh, you know, so uh, again, that leads us to maybe literacy isn't that crucial. And that's very important. Once you start observing that literacy is perhaps not that crucial, then you start questioning, why is it that literacy is pushed through education so much again and again and again? UNESCO is all about this, right? Mm -hmm. uh, UNICEF, all measures of national development uses literacy as an index for national development, right? So if you don't have literacy, your national development index falls. So why is it? Why is literacy so crucial to all these internationalization agendas? Why? Because literacy is group A. It takes you away from your present. It teaches you things which you cannot observe or verify in a language that you don't even understand. And therefore, you have no way to actually challenge it, but you only can accept it. So you accept the categories that you're given. And because you're examined through your schooling systems to, uh, to project that knowledge, you demonstrate that you have learned these categories. Through this, you essentially uh, create, you destroy the super diversity and you destroy the local harmonizations and, and, and local ways of, of doing things. It's extremely destructive. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the fundamental tools of destruction of human life forms is to suppress their languages. And we see that was the tool that the colonial era used. So why is it that we are still using the same tools? You know, if we have moved out of colonization, if we really are post-colonial, which we don't, I don't think we are, because if we were post-colonial, we would have moved beyond this, right? Why are we still stuck in doing language teaching and language documentation and, and species documentation in which in ways which are primarily and essentially colonialists uh, dividing in their origin or orientation, divide on structure, divide on function, divide on genealogy, creating divisions, and identities which are which are abstracted out into literacy without without seeing what is happening in front of us you know uh, you know where are the forests where are the fireflies where are where are the koala bears they're all gone how can we say that science is progressing how can we say that our world is getting better when diversity is dying out mm. our world is not getting better it's getting worse but because we live in a world based on literacy and reading and reading in English and categories of English, which then are translated into other languages, which is even worse in many ways. 
where because people have lost their ability to differentiate between a native species and a non-native species, right? I'll give you a concrete example. In in Pakistan, uh, 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 eucalyptus, eucalyptus is not indigenous to most parts of the world. It was brought to other parts of the world after Australia had been uh, uh, colonized. And uh, as you know, Australia is still an example of a living colony, mm. right? It's never been decolonized. Uh, and also the same thing with USA. I think they call it United States of America, but essentially really what it is, is United Colonies of America. Because again, they have never decolonized. Um, and so, you know, you look at these histories of colonizations that have never gone away. Um, and, and, and so, of course, the categories that the colonizations found so useful in creating those powers are then pro propagated through educational and university educational systems. And because this all, all done in English and people in different parts of the world just don't have the required ability to understand language or English, they accept these categories because they're coming from rich countries and, mm. we, you know, they buy. Oh, yes, this must be good for us because, you know, the British consul is giving it to us. USAID is doing this for us. You know, TESOL is doing this for us. Or, you know, IHFL is doing this for us. It must be all good for us because they are doing so such good things for us. You know, they're such nice people and kind-hearted and they want to volunteer their time and come and teach us. That is nice. And I, I love the people in these professions because that is true. They have a good heart. But the problem isn't their heart. The problem is the knowledge that they have espoused themselves and, and propagate. It's the knowledge that they are propagating that is violent. And, mm -hmm. and they're doing it without even realizing they're doing it because it's, they are so normalized into it. You know, they just see the world through those categories of English. That's how people see each other. That's how they live. You know, everything is seen as families and, and languages and, and different languages. And you're an Urdu speaker and you're a Hindi speaker. Therefore, you're two people. Wait a second, Urdu and Hindi are mutually intelligible. Even today, they're mutually intelligible. You know, people in India watch Pakistani dramas and pa people in Pakistan watch Bollywood movies. Mm. How can they do that? Because they're mutually intelligible, right? And yet, notice the use of a script, which is visual and not primary to language. And the script for these languages was engineered at Fort William College in the early 1700s, Fort William College was established by the East India Company. Notice it was established as a college. And it's the college that created the scripts and, and created the uh, identities that created a split between Urdu and Hindi. Uh, so imagine this, a mutually intelligible community that is the same, they speak the same, they live the same, through structural variations, such like, for example, in, in Hindi, say they say Jira, in Urdu, they say Zira. So Zira and Jira. They are mutually intelligible, but because they are actually phonetically different, linguists will go in and define them at phonetic variation, draw the isoglosses, and using the isoglosses, create differences and say, here's one language, Hindi, and here's Urdu. And guess what? On top of it, Hindi uses Devanagari script, and Urdu uses Persian. And just think of the violence that, just think of South Asia and the violence that you find there. Forget anywhere else for a, for a second. Because, mm. you know, honestly, there are other parts of the world which are even more violent. But just think of South Asia and the violence and so much of it is, is based on this Hindu-Muslim conflict, which gets, goes, roots of it goes back into the Hindi-Urdu conflict right. and, and the division of the language. Mm -hmm. I, I would like to ask you a little about your work on identity management? Yeah, yeah. That's older work because uh, mm. I, it's, it's not work that I'm doing, but uh, I still look at it and use it. Essentially, it, it's sort of the idea of identity management is about how education and language are together used to position people so that they will espouse 
certain identities and beliefs. Mm. So, for example, you know, if you if your educational curriculum presents the history of the genocide of the indigenous populations mm. in Australia, not as a genocide, but uh, you know, as 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 a as a conquering of of lands that were uh, you know largely uninhibited, then by framing the histories in two different ways, you're actually creating two different, very different worldviews. Right. Which means you are going to create two very different ways of political positionings. Mm-hmm. One where people would say, "Hey, de- we need to you know decolonize and and you know free the people of the of the land who now are only three percent, and uh, but represent twenty seven percent in the prisons." Right. So. You know, the Black Lives Movement is is very much on our, so many of our minds, and you see the same things happening in Australia, right? So right. you you have got a country where you know the, essentially the British came and took over all the lands, and the part I'm live on the lands I'm living in at the moment, you know, essentially a, a, an explorer came here with ten people who had guns, and they took over something like three hundred sixty thousand hectares of land and claimed it as their own. Uh, right. These are the big families and the, and the you know elite families and the and the and the you know powerful families and the political families and the families that own all the big businesses. These are the people. These are their heritage. This is their histories. You know, this is where the wealth is made on. And of course, they want to save it. So if they want to save it, they want to perpetuate the kind of knowledge and education that will allow them to live the lives that they do. So then they frame history and language within people that will disarm them. Or, or, or essentially disable them to do certain things. And so essentially through that disablement of human population through education, you're essentially able to manipulate and manage uh, your own control and privilege. Um, and this is not so anything new, right? So for example, the idea of, I mean, identity management, perhaps not said in the same words, but people like Michael Apple and others have been looking at curriculum and, and, and identi- uh, identity and curriculum and politics and curriculum and power for a ver- and ideology for a very long time. So sort of what I'm sort of adding to it is just not only looking at the curriculum or the content, but actually the language within the content, because language is the socio-semiotic stuff. It's not just the content itself, but how you present the content and then how you frame the questions and what questions you include and what questions you exclude that all sort of works together to create positionalities and, and belief systems uh, that permit certain things to happen. Uh, and, you know, I'll give you an example. Uh, this is from my work on identity management. So when I was in high school in Pakistan, uh, I, I, uh, there was a text uh, called, uh, it's, a, it's, a Sufi, it's a Sufi poet uh, uh, from Sindh, Shah Abdul Latif. Uh, yeah, Shah Latif. So Shah Latif was the name of the text. It was in my high school textbook. Uh, and the first sentence of this textbook this chapter, which has not changed. I'm, I'm not making this up. So I studied this textbook in the 1980s. The same textbook is used with very minor revisions even today. And the sentence that I'm quoting is the sentence I was taught and the sentence kids are taught today, 30 years later or 40 years later. And the sentence is the first sentence of, an, of a biography on Shah Abdul Latif. The first sentence, Islam is the religion of peace. Right. Notice it's the religion of peace. Now, if you take a very world English perspective and you sort of look at it, you can talk about, you know, the variations of, uh, you know, of article usage between different Englishes, you know, the use of a versus and the in Pakistani English. And we can have all these sort of analysis. And I've done that stuff. I wrote that stuff decades ago. Right. Yeah, you can do that. 
but what that's not what's happening here what's really happening here is you have children who are impressionable who are young who are being who are being directed to think of islam as the only religion of peace right islam mm. is the religion of peace it's a definite article it's an exclusionary art- article which means it excludes all other forms of belief systems mm. so islam is the only religion of peace now notice this little choice of article which can be studied in world religions in a hundred different ways, is not a variation in structural. It is actually creating a meaning. Mm. It is telling students that Islam is the only religion. Others are not good. Now, if you repeat this message again and again and again through a 16-year-old, 16 years of a school education of a child, when they come out of school, that will be their worldview. Then, of course, you can create Taliban's and Islamic fundamentalisms. You create all these different things that that are manipulations of the populations because the education system is so corrupt. You've given plenty of uh, great and relevant current examples of of how language uh, causes these uh, kind of difficulties. But I would like to finish by uh, just giving the, the final sentence of your of your paper, which I think contains within it uh, quite a lot of hope. So uh, you say, having identified the types of issues that contact-initiated language change can make, it is imperative that we use this understanding to educate people on how languages can influence us, our lives, our communities, our environment, and how we need to take control of our languages in order to bring social harmonization and environmental stability. So my final question is, what advice would you give to us now that we have um, identified the problems? How can we uh, take control of our language? What uh, advice would you have for that? Yes, that's an excellent question. Actually, I've, I've got uh, a, a six strategies that I've identified uh, very specifically in, 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 in a couple of my essays, especially in, at the end of Colonization 3.0, uh, where I've got six uh, steps that I think we need to consider as, as ways in, as we move forward in an educational space. Uh, I, and I don't want to repeat them here. So I, what I will do instead is, is talk about something I haven't written about as much, but I did talk to you about a bit, is that I think we need very importantly we need to do two things. One, we need to move away from reference-based thinking, minimize that as much as possible, if not delete it, and move into observation-based thinking, especially when we are dealing with uh, you know any social semiotics and social sciences. Uh, and that will really help us to sort of smooth out and identify our problems uh, that, that, that permeate the fields that we work in, uh, to sort of move into th- looking into things geographically uh, by, through observation in relation to where where things are and how things are and what the weather systems are and what the geographic other conditions are all of that in consideration to how, what humans would do and how they would move to sort of understand all of these complexities of human relationships based on observations rather than references because again and as I said earlier, references are based on reading. Reading is sight-based, and very often we are we are essentially suspending our our disbelief uh, at times when we accept uh, uh, other people's opinions without necessarily observing and having observational data. And definitely, we should uh, in our teaching not get our students just to replicate that stuff and and define things in exactly the same way that always been defined, but really question these sort of definitions and terms and and look at these things uh, in our own 
own work and with our students. So I think that's really important uh, one. And the second thing I want to stress is really think about a unified social sciences, social semiotics that operates on a principle of symbols. So I'm just really sort of working through this and I'm happy to work through this and answer questions and challenges and, and work through and perhaps develop this further and hopefully develop this further. But sort of to start off by thinking is how a symbol is a, is a counterpart to an atom. So what atom is to is to the material, physical world, biological world, a symbol is to those we think and, and articulate and, and imagine and, and, and uh, you know, study and educate and all that stuff uh, and believe and all that stuff. That's all based on symbols. So once we identify symbols as the same sort of a building block that uh, that that you know parallel to an atom, then we can start looking at how symbols operate, uh, and and how symbols operate in different contexts. How symbols can be patterned. What what possible patterns? Uh, op, op, you know what are some of the ways, various ways in which these options can be mapped out and categorized. What are the various ways of categorizing and classifying? All of these things really have to look at it from a very open mind, without being bound by the categories that we have been raised in. Uh, right of really sort of. Uh, have to do, have really do some free thinking and independent thinking, uh, which is again based on observation. Uh, so that, as in, in much of my talk with you today, I've tried to you know minimize uh, references and talk more. You know, you observe this, observe this, observe this, because observation is is immediate. You can you can see it and you can study it and you can focus it on yourself. And through observation, you can un understand and reach a conclusion. Because you you're a sentient being, you have the ability to do it. You don't need me to tell you what things are prepackaged without you having had a chance to observe, which means that I'm actually not letting you observe or create your understandings, but giving you a category and telling you this is how it has to work. Now, once you do that uh, and you do, uh, you know, if, if you, you move away from reference based thinking into observation and geographical thinking, uh, uh, you know, people will start sort of realizing where the huge problems lie across the board and in their own ways, in their own locations, in their own uh, you know, places, in their own languages, people can start to sort of resist it and create alternative approaches and alternative practices. That's the key thing that I, 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 I keep talking about because in, as, as educationists, we are not revolutionaries. But we can, as educationists, be reformists, right? And as educationists, as reformists in education, uh, you know, what do we need to do in order to create the kind of shifts that we need in academia, create the well-being um, and the environmental harmonization that we are all hoping for? You know, I, I don't see, I don't think anybody would say that that's not our goals. Uh, but how do we reach them? And I think uh, uh, we have just as much a role to play in it as environmental scientists. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been absolutely fascinating and I, I hope uh, in the future we'll have the chance to possibly meet but definitely speak again and I, I wish you Sounds all good. absolutely, I wish you all the best with your with your work. Thank you so much, Chris. Hope you see, hope you see you soon. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.